I'm Sam Jima, host of The Geopolitics of Business, the show where we explore what happens when business and politics collide and how leaders respond. In the run-up to COP28, the annual UN climate meeting, we wanted to dive into how geopolitics is shaping the energy market at a time of war, what that means for the climate transition, and what is required for this next chapter. There is money to unlock for this, provided that people believe that public policy, so that's taxes, regulations and other, are consistent and in favour of producing a sensible rate of return. And I mean sensible rather than windfall. That's Lord John Brown, the current chair of investment firm Beyond Net Zero and the former CEO of energy giant BP. In this episode on repowering the global economy, we cover China's role in the transition to renewable energy, impact of the Russia-Ukraine war, where the capital will come from for the transition and what governments can do, and we look ahead to COP28. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Lord Brown, welcome. I want to start with your personal transition from oil and gas to renewable energy. So let's start with your time as chief executive of BP. Now, you were involved with BP for over three decades before you took up the job of CEO in 1995. And I've just been wondering whether there was any particular experience you had over those years that made you think BP could become a leader in renewable energy. I started my uh, career in Alaska, working 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And one thing I did observe was how if you didn't treat the tundra very well, you left permanent scars. And when I was working there in the late 60s, people didn't understand the environment and they just used it. And it was very clear that when people ran willy-nilly over the tundra, they left scars that made lakes and the lakes never went away. And I remembered that and I said to myself, I think we need to be very careful what we do here because we could, of course, waterlog the entire place and destroy the fragile covering uh, of the earth. So that, that one thing stuck with me for a long time. When I became CEO, it was very clear that there has to be something that we needed to do as an oil and gas industry because something was going on with the world's climate. Was there a particular moment that crystallized this there concern? Were. Uh, well, I think the Rio summit. And after the Rio summit, people said, well, we ought to say something about being an environmental leader, a leader, the leader, a group of leaders. And there was a very much a debate, uh, almost of angels on a pinhead, about how one defines that. And when I became CEO, I said, we need to cut through this. And we need to look at what people think today. And Sir John Houghton, who's the then, the late John Houghton, who was the director of the meteorological office, was someone that I got to know. And I said to him, perhaps we could discuss with you and with our other experts about what you thought was happening to the world and its climate and the atmosphere. So very much a discussion based on science is yes. what you were engaged well, with. BP is an engineering and science-based company. 
And we had a lot of geoscientists as well. And geoscientists meant to understand the world. So uh, we had a big debate. We had a lot of people come in and talk to us. We've sent emissaries to various places to find out what people were doing. And we realized that on the balance of probability, we were doing something that wasn't very good and we had to do something about it. Namely, we were adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, which was changing the way in which the dynamics of the world were working. And it was almost like uh, a very finely balanced scale, you know, where it's in perfect balance, but you put a feather on one side and it tips. And that was what humans were doing. They were imbalancing the world and creating an excess flow of greenhouse gases. How do you characterize the current geopolitical landscape for energy in a world where we're seeing greater fragmentation, shift in power blocks, but also great polarization? Well, uh, I mean, I think everything changes, nothing changes. Fragmentation has always, I think, been in people's minds when you do business. The relationships are never completely secure. So today, the big change was, of course, the unwarranted war in Ukraine and uh, the impact on the world's relationships with Russia. Uh, it changed a lot of things because Europe, of course, as everybody knows, became, and in particular Germany, became very dependent on Russian natural gas and Russian oil being one of the big three producers of the world uh, was a essential part of the oil market. So costs went up very quickly, an impact on affordability on many, many populations, which caused a real concern for incumbent politicians and a real understanding that actually security is a big, important factor. And we've forgotten that. You know, we were running inventories and just-in-time ideas without security. There used to be, I remember when I was in the industry, we had to keep certain levels of stocks uh, because of security. That went away. We had uh, gas storage. That was sold because people said it wasn't profitable to keep. And, of course, nobody was paying for the security. And as a result, that which was in private hands was either shut down or sold. So it reminded us that securities there, affordability was very important, and it changed the scene for the way in which the sources of energy were developed. So that was good for uh, non-hydrocarbon energy, renewables, for example, and for nuclear in some parts of the world. But equally, it allowed massive imports of natural gas from elsewhere, notably America, which had a big surplus of gas, uh, could liquefy it and send it notably to Germany. So it changed the energy map a lot. And you, you've put your finger on it then, and so many questions I want to ask you on this. Can you have security and affordability and reliable energy all at the same time? It's very difficult to achieve. Uh, of course you can. Uh, but then there is a cost. There's a cost, and the question is which bit is picked up by individuals, which bit is picked up by companies, and importantly, which bit is picked up by the public purse? Because the security of a nation 
is very much in the hands of the government rather than individual companies or individuals. So there is a cost to all this, and a cost which is actually unavoidable. The question then is, how do you find the money to pay for it? But uh, if you make this even more obvious, there's a cost also to make sure that it's green, uh, that it's clean, and that you don't make adverse choices. And, and this requires long-term thinking, which is often uh, absent. And it requires thinking about the interrelationship between all these factors, because changing one thing may have adverse consequences. Uh, I'm always struck by, if you tell people to reduce uh, their level of beef consumption because cows produce methane, you may well find that all, all you've done is because there's no manure left, you've had to import more non-green fertilizer. So you have to be very careful about these trade-offs. It's not always the case, but the same is true with energy. If you could just for a second take me into the room where you did the deal to with Russia to access Russian oil. What was the conversation like? Well, that, that deal, of course, uh, I started by taking BP into Russia with a very small step, half $500 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but in the grand scale of oil and gas, it's not huge. And I went to the board and said, we're going to buy a piece of a company and we may lose our shirts. So it's a complete risk uh, piece. And they said, we have to do it because Russia's so big. So we bought this company and indeed we were squeezed by incumbent interests to the point where we probably lost 60% of the money. And the incumbent interests, we said we'd fight them. And we found out that they were squeezing us. In the courts or how were you going to well, fight Well, actually, them? geopolitically. It turned out that the people who were squeezing us by, by artificial bankruptcy of subsidiaries and paying for them were using money which they obtained from the Exim Bank in the United States uh, through another route. So I, I decided with my team uh, that we'd simply go and cut the source of money off. So we went to the Exim Bank, we went to the Senate, we went to the House, and we stopped the finance. And then we noticed something happened. Surprise, uh, surprise. And uh, so the incumbent interest came to see us and said, could we do a deal? And I actually said to them, I don't want to speak to you. Uh, and so for a year, nothing happened until uh, they managed to get through to the chief rabbi in Moscow, who spoke to my dear late mother, who persuaded me that these were quite good people. and Maybe I should at least have a conversation with them. So I did, which was a very bizarre way of getting things done. So we had a conversation and we did a deal with uh, TNK, which wrapped up this other company that we bought and some of the other assets we had in Russia. And we produced something called TNK BP, 50-50 between BP and Russian interests. And at that moment, as we were doing it, we came to the attention of Mr. Putin, who asked to see me. And that was my first, so my second meeting with him. I'm intrigued by that conversation. Uh, and yeah, the conversation was, well, I'm very interested you're bringing all this management and technology, which we were. 
and finance, but you can't have 50%. You've got to have 49%. And I said, no, Mr. Putin, I would like 51%, uh, but I can't get it. So it's going to be 50-50. And he said to me, it'll fail. 50-50, it'll fail. So I said, well, let's see. And was We're that a threat or was that you didn't believe in well, the I, business I venture? Took it, I took it as a statement of opinion. Right. So uh, we proceeded. Uh, and then um, I think he found it uh, very convenient. Did you see him as a reliable partner? Y yes. In, in the first, you know, Putin in his first phase was uh, cleaning things up, actually. You know, he really was. There was a botched uh, privatization through vouchers. There was uh, no application of the rule of law. And he kept saying, I remember when he came to the UK in late 99, and he said, I'm cleaning this up, we're going to have rule of law, we're going to use the courts properly, we're going to have contracts, we're going to have, you know, people do things in the right way. And everybody said, that's really good. You know, he was a hero. So Putin was regarded as reliable, and there were checks and balances. I mean, we didn't write a blank check contract. We wrote a contract that was tested uh, outside Russia that had lots and lots of things which protected the interests of both parties against each other. Uh, and so we proceeded, and there were certainly, you know, lots of bumps in the relationship. I went to see Putin probably four times a year, uh, you know, he would. I would have an agenda with him about how things were going. He would ask questions. I'd have the same agenda every time because I do believe that consistency uh, when, you come, when you're a business is important because if you're consistent, the government at least is biased to be consistent towards you. Not necessarily, but at least they're biased that way. So I, I got to know him quite well. I mean, uh, in some ways, but I stopped seeing him in 2007 when I left BP. And things evolved um, in terms of the, the 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 Russian joint venture. And rather than sort of dwelling on sort of the BP experience, I'm quite interested in oil companies generally, whether it's become easier or more difficult to do business in today's world, given geopolitical shifts. But also there's the pressure, which I'll come on to, to accelerate, help accelerate or certainly lead the climate transition? So I, I think that it's probably both easier and more difficult. It's the first thing to note is when, when I was doing business in all these countries, it was almost a de novo start every time you went to a new country. Connectivity is so high now that expectations are set the moment you set foot into a, a country. So in some ways, you know what you've got to do. The expectations are high about, uh, about national interest, about returns, about windfall profits. You know, no one allows you to do windfall profits mostly nowadays. Uh, and environmental standards, a lot of things. A lot of things are covered already. Uh, and so that says, well, we are where we are, you know, and th that's a good thing because you never want to try and do a deal 
which is so biased in your favour that when people get up to speed on the deal, they realise it's so bad they're going to take it away. It triggers buyer's remorse. It does, you know. So you've got to be balanced and treat everyone fairly and equally. So that's, I think, a change. I think the level of influence of host countries has reduced significantly. That may not be the case if you're from the United States, but I would say, or China, but it it is now mostly the case, more difficult to believe that your host country has the clout to change things. So people are more skeptical about that than they used to be. Uh, and, And that's part of the fact that the relationships are all up for grabs now. The relationships are all up for grabs indeed. But I'm also interested in China, which doesn't always come up in the discussion around energy, but they're a major player in the energy world, especially because of the how they're dominating the renewable market, whether it's solar, wind, electric vehicles, batteries, um, you name it. And how is China's increasing contention with the West affecting the businesses of energy companies and particularly sort of the periphery countries that also have an interest in the energy market? Well, underlying all the work going on on renewables, of course, is the basic energy business. BP's was the biggest foreign investor in China for quite a long time in refining and the importation of liquefied natural gas, as well as some rather abortive exploration activity. So that that still goes on. Uh, I mean, China is a very big energy player. It's just that it doesn't have a lot of indigenous energy of a liquid form. It's still developing a lot of coal-fired power stations I would regard that as not so much just an insult to the environment, but as security. It's the one thing they can rely upon if someone cuts the chain of gas imports, for example. And that changes the way that China has relationship with coal producers, with gas producers, a lot of things. In addition, it has single-handedly reduced the cost of solar power by producing a very large amount of uh, cells. And it still does, and it will still be producing those for the world in various parts. Equally, a lot of nations are now saying, time for us to start uh, building solar panel manufacturing, uh, which they will do. Which they will do. Because I've been wondering whether there is a future for renewable energy that doesn't involve China's active participation. Um, especially in the context of US-China relations? Entirely depends where you stand, you know, because the US is not the only place uh, that has solar panels, neither neither is Europe. And the whole of the global south, for example, uh, could do with a large amount of renewable energy. Uh, Much of the equipment will doubtless come from China, whatever Europe and the US does. But there will be more diversification. There's no doubt. Again, it'll be diversification because security comes from diversified supplies, and that is what will drive it. The key limiting factor in all this will be how much people are prepared to pay, because it will be more expensive when you start up things elsewhere, and can you get the supply chain sorted so you can get the right critical minerals in order to make all these things. So batteries, for example, which are 
China is the world leader, you know, they will be made elsewhere. No one will rely in the West, I think, on pure stream of Chinese batteries. They will have some, uh, but they will build them in their home countries, and this will require real changes in the supply chain. Real changes in the supply chain, and what you said is, who is going to sort this out? Is this something that needs to be dealt with at national level, regional level, global level? Because whenever you begin to look at the transition to net zero, one of the big questions is where is the leadership? This is hugely complex. It's changing industries. It's changing the way we live. Is the market somehow going to drive this or what level is the leadership going to come from? So it will be uh, probably national policies that will determine the drive and therefore the leadership will have to be nation by nation. There will be some interaction, but actually in the end, there's going to be no central giant brain that sorts this out for the world, nor will there be some world government that does it. Uh, so it'll be national. Uh, and that was the advantage of the Paris COP in that it at least gave people a sense that there are delegated targets nation by nation. Now, plenty of problems with that. The targets weren't well defined. And, and people's choice uh, of, you know, what the long-term, short-term choice is, you know, that varies according to nation. And indeed, some nations have no choice. So the $100 billion, which was promised to the global south every year, wasn't delivered. That must be delivered. And there are plenty of ways to do that that I hope will be looked at at COP28. I'm pleased you've mentioned the $100 billion um, that was promised to uh, countries in the global south, because implicit in everything we've been discussing is the need for an industrial revolution. And that's going to require trillions of dollars of investment uh, for very capital intensive industries. Government balance sheets are stretched. Don't think taxpayers are really in the mood to pay higher taxes to fund the climate transition. So where is the money going to come from? So we obviously need a lot more capital. And I think that capital has to come out believing, as I do, that investment in these industries and in the infrastructure related to it is actually a source of growth. This is not a zero-sum game. Obviously, that's replete with political viewpoints and dogma. But I think every demonstration shows that when you start investing in increasing the efficiency and effectiveness, which is what this does, of a nation, it will improve productivity, uh, that it will generate wealth. And therefore, I think this is done both with a public and private source of money. So public-private partnerships are essential. There is money to unlock for this, provided that people believe that public policy, so that's taxes, regulations and other, are consistent and in favour of producing a sensible rate of return. And I mean sensible rather than windfall. You know, there will be some things, and this is on average now. And we've seen that with um, wind energy offshore and onshore. We've wind, seen right? it, yes, we have. But it has to, again, be, um, it's a systems approach, if you will. Speaking as an engineer, I say it's a systems approach. You know, you have to have all the regulation and taxes 
all aligned. So it's all very well giving people you know, money for offshore wind or, or subsidy, but if they can't connect it to the grid, they won't build it. So lots of things need to go in the right direction. And can you say that the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is a template that other countries, obviously huge size, $369 billion, it wouldn't be the that wouldn't be that for every country, but is that the kind of yes, template it is. that you I see? mean, obviously, some of that still has to be appropriated properly and and laid on the ground. It takes time to put this amount of money at work. I mean, I, the Department of Energy alone in the United States is accountable for some eight hundred and eighty billion dollars of government uh, funding, which goes hand in hand with private funding, uh, and it will take a little time to get that going but it's going at a fast speed. So that's good. Everyone has a different taste in this, but it's a, a combination of getting the jobs in the right places, which is about growth in industry, getting industry developed in a way which is green, getting energy transition conducted in a way which is green. So all these things are sort of aligned in the different forms of legislation that have been passed at the federal government level. And, you know, as a, as a sort of former politician myself, I look at that and think, that's great. I agree with you. It's the sort of template that would work. But you can see the US doing it. You could see the EU doing it. You could see China doing it. But then I wonder, what does it mean for smaller countries or where if you, you can't respond in terms of the same degree of subsidy, but at the same time, if you don't respond, you risk losing the new the industries of the future. Of course, when you boil down the Inflation Reduction Act, it is a piece of uh, industrial policy and therefore industrial strategy. It's not picking winners. It's picking big sectors that need the public purse to really motor forward. And that is something that we all, this is sort of a new thought, if you will, but it, it's not the same as it used to be in the 60s and 70s, where, you know, feather bedding, uh, you know, failing industries because you believe that's part of industrial strategy. There's nothing to do with that. Losers picking governments. I think, it's not a good idea. Uh, but this is a more sensible approach of making sure there's enough competition within a sector in order to get the right answer, but supporting the sector. And that's important. Practically speaking, where are we in this transition? Is 2030 doable? Is it 2050? There is no doubt we're behind. We're not investing enough money. Uh, we may not be able to invest enough money, but I believe that people are now trying to do that and to do it on an equitable basis. I hope that in COP28 we will solve or at least start solving some of the problems of the investment in the global south. And, and 100 billion is, is only the start, in my view. Very important indeed. I think the emerging economies really need a lot of help. Uh, I think we see a template in the IRA, which helps. So we're getting, I think, money beginning to align to returns, and it will come along in that way. It does require consistency. We are late, which means we may not make and the, clock the target. Because it's not just what we do in 2050, it's what we do in 2030 that matters. 
because it's all about the cumulative banking of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So 2030 is an important date, 2035 is an important date, every date is important. And the more we're behind, the more unlikely it is that we will achieve net zero by around 2050. You mentioned COP28. Is there any intervention that you personally would be making at this COP, given how high the stakes are and the complexity of meeting the challenges? Well, up, up until today, I would have said I will keep that to myself, but I noticed that COP28 put on uh, Twitter, or X, I should say, uh, that Dr. Sultan, I and Mr. Carney were talking about climate finance, and I think there should be a big breakthrough for that in COP28. Now, I'm committed to helping in any way I can. I think that's a very important thing. How do you get finance into the right places at the right risk level? And there are lots of ways of doing that. Secondly, there has to be something to do with accelerating decarbonisation, both from the oil and gas industry, but from industry generally. And that includes methane capture. There should be no reason why we put any methane from any industrial activity into the atmosphere. So I think those are two very important things. And the third important thing is to put some rigor and real confidence into the carbon markets. And by that, I mean the offset, offset market. Markets, okay. So if I could write this in a way which would be what I really want, I'd love to see carbon pricing everywhere. Do I think politically that can be done? Probably not, because America doesn't like it very much. But there are other ways of doing it. But in the end, you know, we have to, the world has to pay for the externality. And that's about pricing carbon. I mean, you've touched on money. Much of the discussion, certainly from I hear from investors, given my involvement in venture capital, for example, is that there is a lot of money going into climate, but not enough coming out. Apart from, you know, there was, people mentioned Tesla as the poster child of a climate driven company that is worth billions on the stock market today. You have been chair of a private equity fund investing in renewables. You are now chair of Beyond Net Zero. And for the benefit of our listeners, you're doing that with General Atlantic, a long-standing venture capital firm with a long track record of success of investing in and backing new ideas. Can you tell me though why you've chosen to embark on this phase so invest in and sure. how do you make the pitch well i set up with uh, a friend of mine with two co-founders we set up a beyond net zero which was to be a growth equity climate only fund so we have to invest in companies minority interests where we influence companies in the growth stage that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions in line at least with science-based targets, so benchmarkable targets. And we can find, and we do, we've invested, I have practical outcomes, we can invest in companies that do actually make money and do actually increase in value. There are plenty around. You have to find them, have to work with CEOs, all of whom like to do this, work with CEOs, give them the means whereby to grow. And the name of the game is to grow because then they have impact in the future. So there is definitely 
the money that can come out. In the energy business, it's strange that money never comes out very quickly. And that requires what you mean, some returns in returns that come when you oh, exit. You can investment. get valuations up, but actually cash out the payback time for most of this stuff is longer than people think. In 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 private equity of a five year investing horizon, you know, you will get some realizations in the first five years, but they will come out in the second five years. So these are long term investments that Always. require a very different time horizon in terms of investment and return. Yes, it, it therefore requires a reasonably high IRR, rate of return, in order to encourage people to invest. But again, that that is possible. And do the leaders that you've talked to really think that integrating climate change into their business plans and really making the investment, do you, do you see that that is something they really believe and want to do? I think if you look at... Uh, Business leaders, they're all over the place. Some really want to do it. Others do it because they are fellow travelers. They come along with other people. And some people say a lot and do nothing. On balance, I'd say, on, on real balance, business leaders want to, they understand that business is a long-term activity. And they understand this is important for the long term. And they also understand that while their customers or clients won't pay a big premium, sometimes they won't pay at all, they are very concerned to do business with people who are doing something about the future. You know, whether we can find a green premium for big things like steel or cement and things like this, that remains to be seen. But there are plenty of people who are prepared to go forward on this basis. I note that, for example, even in green steel, because it represents a smaller input into finished goods, people are prepared to pay a premium for green steel and use it because it hardly impacts the overall cost of the finished product, a car, for example. So I think that there are movements in all these areas. My concern is not that there are movements my greater concern is that they're not fast enough. Not fast enough. And judging by the wildfires and floods this year, I mean, we've already transitioned arguably into a climate impact world. And the net zero transition is going to involve huge trade-offs in the developing world by 2050. And when I reflect on this, I, I begin to wonder how much of it is down to business and investment, how much of it is down to government policy, but also how much of it is carbon abstinence. And the reason why I think about this is, this is a multi-decade transition. And to carry public support with you for that period of time, if it's based mainly on carbon abstinence, it's going to be hugely challenging. So how do you think about all these factors and how we wait policy, investment in innovation, changes of behavior that we expect from citizens and consumers? Well, you know, I think, first of all, government can't uh, set to one side and say they will do nothing because they have to set the policy framework and then get out of the way. Policy framework is very important. It is the thing that will drive everything. Business will deliver. They're the delivery vehicle, not governments. Businesses are the delivery vehicle, and consumers 
will, I think, respond both to availability of goods, so cleaner goods, and also regulation. I know that using carbon is not the same as a smoking addition, addiction, but it's remarkable what's happened to behaviour change by making it more and more difficult for people to smoke and more and more expensive. Now, carbon is also a health hazard, of course, as is diesel, clearly a health hazard. So I think there are legitimate ways of changing behaviour if you bear that in mind. It's not just the environment, it's the local health and the fact that it would be good and essential to avoid floods, wildfires and extra force hurricanes because the ocean's warmer. There are plenty of ways of getting there. I'm very confident that solutions are possible, probable and can be delivered. They need to be delivered commercially and they're not already commercially. Government has to help make that possible. Thank you, Lord Brown, for your time. Thank you. My thanks to Lord John Brown, the current chair of investment firm Beyond Net Zero and the former CEO of energy giant BP. Next time on the geopolitics of business, we turn to the theme of threats and opportunities from rising states. Those countries play in a bigger role geopolitically and economically as a consequence of US-China strategic rivalry. A lot of people tend to think of emerging markets as one big block, but I think having specific strategies for different countries and how do you negotiate that, I think that's become even more important in this environment. Join me in a conversation with author, Financial Times columnist and investor, Rishia Sharma, who is the chairman of Rockefeller International on our next episode. As next week is Thanksgiving in the United States, we'll be taking a break for a week. In the meantime, do check out my LinkedIn newsletter to get your key takeaways from the podcast. And feel free to contact us at info at thegeopoliticsofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening to The Geopolitics of Business. I'm Sam Jima, and I'm the show's host and executive producer. Our show is produced by FB Studios, whose team includes Ashley Westman, Claudia Tatey, and Rob Sachs, with additional production support from Nikki Black of SGA Media. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe and share with your friends. Views and opinions on the show do not necessarily represent those of foreign policy, its affiliates, or any institution the host is associated with. And as a reminder, while our program does contain broad advice that can be useful for investors, we highly recommend that individual investors consult with an independent financial advisor before making any investment decisions.